everybody. It's Tyler. I'm Mr. Doyle. And this is the 31st episode of Fried Squirms. I guess we forgot to mention it last episode, but now I'm thinking about it because I'm going to have to edit it in like a couple hours here. But our last episode, episode 30, marked the debut of our new theme. Yeah, so I'm excited about the release of that because it does mark a kind of a neat little cornerstone for us. It's the 30th episode. We get to release a new theme. I don't think, I don't think we mentioned that, did we? No, yeah. I don't believe we did either. Yeah, so uh, thanks to our friend Justin for that. He yeah, also supplied our old Justin. theme. But it's just sort of our, just another metamorphosis, another evolving of the show. I think it sort of fits the, the horror a little bit better than our old one. Yeah, I really I, liked our old one. Don't get me wrong. Yeah, no, that's why we made sure that Justin did this one again. It but. was like you said, it's a, it's a way for us to kind of, you know, evolve a little bit. Yeah, so I'm excited about that. And the other big news, I think, before we get into everything else, is unfortunately just yesterday, when we're recording this now, George Romero passed away. Yeah, that's a big shocker. You know, in terms of name and the horror genre in general and what he did to shape the whole landscape. Yeah, I mean... There's no bigger horror out there right now than zombies. Everybody oh has gosh, a fucking yeah. zombie survival plan. Fucking everybody and their fucking mom seems to watch The Walking Dead. I actually don't, but... I actually live really close to one of the guys who works at uh, here in town that does, like, the zombie apocalypse weapons and things like that. Oh, the fucking zombie tools guys? Yeah. Yeah, so yeah. One they of those shop guys, in the store all the time. Yeah, too. one of those guys just lives a few houses up the road from me. And zombies wouldn't have pervaded the zeitgeist so much if it wasn't for the zombie movie. And the modern zombie movie absolutely can be credited to George Romero. It all goes back. Night of the Living Dead, and then followed up later with, like, Dawn of the Dead. I mean, he did more of the Dead series, but I think those two are the two that people... Huge landmarks. I mean, most people... I mean, Night is bigger because it was first, and it was you know done such such old school low budget and it was what what it did was was remarkable and touched oh off gosh, something yeah it, i've always preferred don no I, I do love don but like so when you do go back and look at night of the living dead you can see it cinematically the storytelling and the fact that they are using these reanimated corpses you know it brings a really a real weird sense of urgency you know that maybe not have been portrayed in film prior to that point so uh like i said and the whole fact that he spun all these zombie features from this point forward it's amazing i mean the fact is even as we've done this show like we've had slasher month now we're in the middle of vampire month and it's because we have to almost kind of go out of our way to make sure that these things get included zombies we've already touched on a number of times because there was no way for us to avoid them it's going to happen, yeah, and especially in horror, you can't help but run into it at some point. And I also just want to throw out there that I always preferred the classic Romero slow zombies. I do to, too. I to like fast that. zombies. I don't I like mean, fast zombies as they, much. Actually, they, they, they all have their own credit, but if it were not for Romero, you wouldn't have either. Right, and so that's, I mean, it's kind of heartbreaking, really. It um, really is. It's unfortunate. But, uh, was it lung cancer, I believe? I would think you're correct. Uh, 77 years old. I mean, he still had a huge, long-lasting life. That'll just... Do you know where he's from? No. Pittsburgh. So, yeah. Maybe I did know that. I guess if I would have thought a little bit more. That's okay. I could have pulled that one out. No, the only reason why I know that is because of Night of the Living Dead he shot in and around Pittsburgh. And in the movie that I was thinking about, debating about choosing for my pre-1990 film is shot in and around Pittsburgh as well. See, I was thinking of it because of uh, Zach and Mary make a porno. Oh, good point, yeah. The Monroeville zombies because it was the Monroeville mall. Yeah. 
good point. That's funny. <laughs> well, no, that's like I said, it even shows up in comedies and things like that too. So culturally, it's all over the place. Yep, there's the Kevin Smith fanboy coming out. It happens. Zach Mary McPorno. We can't help it. What? Yeah. <laughs> He had, I mean, just the biggest impact overall. Like I said, everybody seems to have a fucking zombie survival plan. That wouldn't have been so firmly placed if it wouldn't have been for that shit. So uh, a true legend is passed. Yeah, we're going to miss a, a horror icon. And not only that, but like, it's just it's somebody in cinema history who's going to be missed. It's one of those things that we've been doing, you know, since we've been doing this podcast that unfortunately we are going to start talking about these icons because they're at an age now where unfortunately yeah. they're starting to pass. That's that's absolutely true. Uh, luckily, we ha- do have newcomers coming up through the ranks, which is kind of why we have tried to touch on some of these. Yeah, newer so movies we have to cherish to a lot of these up and comers and people who are still in the game. So and we're support give everybody them. their credit. Support them precisely. But I guess let's get past all the sadness and get into the fact that this is a good movie and we get to talk about Christopher Lee again. Yeah, so with our 31st episode. 31st episode. If this is your jumping off point, we've been covering vampires for a month. We're each choosing a pre-90 and a post-90. Danny won the right to go first with a coin toss and he chose Blackula as his pre-90. And I followed up this week with Count Dracula or... Il Conde Dracula, or yeah. Il Conte Dracula, exactly. or uh, the French is Le Nuit de Dracula? Yeah, I think you're right, because they, they name it the Night of Dracula. Yeah. Yeah, and the Germans, they, I mean, they have their own variation, which is funny as well. Starring Christopher Lee as Dracula, mm-hmm. which he more famously job. known as doing Dracula for the Best Hammer, Hammer films. Right. And so whenever I say that this is a Christopher Lee Dracula movie to people, they're like, oh, fucking Hammer. And I'm yeah. like, actually? No. No, and we're going to get into all the details of that as we, I guess, get into our guts and bolts. I guess with that being said, if there's anything else you want to fill in our listeners on before we get into that, I mean, I'm I'm actually good. Yeah, I'm good too. Yeah, let's get into our guts and bolts. And, guts uh, and bolts, man. Guts and bolts. So here we are into the guts and bolts for the 1970 Count Dracula by Jess Franco, which, like I said, I picked, and I'm excited for it because of a number of reasons yeah, involved right. with this cast and just sort of the, the subject matter in general. But when I brought it up and you realized who's in it, I know that you got very excited oh, as well. Yeah. So how about we tell you who's in it? We're kind of just going to breeze by this because we really want to get into talking about this movie. For obvious reasons, here yeah. a little bit, yeah. But I already mentioned, first off, we have the return of the great Christopher Lee. We certainly do. As Count Dracula. And that is probably the biggest draw in this. Yeah, and if people are not familiar with Christopher Lee, they can go back and listen to our episode of uh, The Devil Rides Out. Yeah. So check that out, because there's a lot of interesting facts that you brought up about him. 21, if I'm not mistaken. Yeah, 21 or 22, wow. something like but, that. Yeah, it was, it was around, yeah, 21 or 22. I guess the next biggest draw, and especially for me, and probably the second best performance in the entire movie would be Klaus Kinski. Yeah, as Renfield. As Renfield. Correct. Uh, uh, the next one I've got written down would be the Dr. Van Helsing character played by Herbert Lom. I think he did a really good job. Yeah, Herbert Lom's great. Then I have the lady who plays Mina Harker. Well, I was going to say the as far as like if we're going in order oh, gotcha, of, if gotcha. we're going in order of like who's a draw, then I'd say that in a much bigger way, the next draw to this movie because of her short-lived life and run in exploitation movies, thanks to Jess Franco. Oh, yeah. Would be actually the actress that played Lucy with Soledad Miranda. 
Yeah, and we'll talk probably extensively about her in the next section. But yeah, she plays Lucy Westerna in this film. The lady who plays Mina Harker is Maria Rom. Then you have Fred Williams plays Jonathan Harker in this film. The next person I have is Dr. Seward, played by Paul Muller. And Quincy Morris, played by Jack Taylor, which I think this is the first film to introduce him. To use Quincy. Well, I'm... Yeah, I, there, there's there's interesting things about this movie that I really... That's why I'm... I'm let's get through this. I'm so, yeah, I'm so, so excited. Yeah, so that rounds out our cast. <laughs> I did want to mention, like I said, our writers. We did mention director Jesus, Jess Franco. The writers for this film are Eric Kroenke did the story and Augusto Finocchi did the screenplay. There's other credits in terms of the Italian, Spanish, German, because there's, there's all these different productions. Cinematographers for this film, there's two guys, Manuel Marino and Luciano Tresati. Editors are Bruno Mattai and Derek Parsons, who got uncredited. Music by Bruno Nicolai. Production companies are Filmar, Compagna, Cinematic, uh, Cinematografica, okay. Phoenix Cooperativa, Cinematografica, and Corona Film Production GmbH. The GmbH just means that it's a German company. I had to look that up because I'm a nerd. And Towers of London were the other production company. Distributors, if you really want to know, there's a shit laundry list of them. I refer people to probably the movie database for that because right. I didn't want to have to go through all of them. No. Produced by Harry Allen Towers, and the release dates I have are April 3rd, 1970 was its premiere debut in West Germany, November 16th, 1970 in Barcelona. I did the Bartha because that's yeah, how they yeah, say it. <laughs> September 21st, 1972 in Mexico and here in the States and in the United Kingdom in 1973. Okay. So, okay. There were, unfortunately, no taglines for this film, so I'm a little sad about that. Oh, wow. Is that, is that, that might be the first? first? I know. I'm sorry, man. That's I'm not sorry your fault. that it's my pick that had to do that to you. It's not really your fault. I guess if I really wanted to be a nerd about it, I, I can look at this and... Just by the title on the poster, all it says is, finally, I think, the real version. Oh, the original version. So, because it's based on Bram Stoker, so there you have it. But and, that's not really a tagline. And I guess for you warning... You have to kind of give warnings, yeah. I mean, it's it's... Does anybody out there not know Dracula at this point? I would hope so. If you're listening to us and you're familiar with vampire films, you're going to be familiar somewhat with Dracula, I would hope. I mean, it's one of those... It's kind of a ubiquitous thing at this point, right? Like, kind of like Spider. We all know Spider-Man's origin. We all know Batman's origin. We all know the goddamn fucking pearls falling in the alleyway, <laughs> or roses, depending. But everyone knows Dracula, right? I would hope like, so at this point. So this film is that story, and it has the vampire violence. Yeah, if you want to call it that. Yeah, neck biting. Yeah, there is definitely biting. There's a very cheesy beheading or two that there are some scenes of blood yeah not copious amounts just very makeup kinda, blood yeah and it's there's one scene that's pretty decent. and i mean it's very it's very early 70s horror blood too like so it, keep that in it mind. stands yeah. out nothing too graphic it, no and i mean it stands out as not being real blood that's what language I'm saying. Wise, it looks good on film though i love it it does i like it it's like i said it's it's artistic mm -hmm. language wise i can't think of anything that's harsh no and for for what this guy's kind of famous for, there's not even very, there's not even really any sexy content. Not really. No, I mean there's sexy ladies, but no sexy content. No, and yeah, that's wow. Considering how? who directed this, yeah, yeah, we'll explain why. Anyway, and the sexiest thing in this movie is probably Christopher Lee. Yeah, he's you can't help it. He's sexy. But I can't think of anything else outside of that. This is a very tame movie. This might be our most tame movie in terms of its content. Yeah, I mean. 
even all the comedies we've done have been way harsher than this. I was trying to think about Repossessed if that was... Definitely dirtier than this. Well, yeah, yeah, dirty-wise because of the comedy. But but yeah, I would think this might be our most tame film to date. But it's still a great film. Keep that in mind. And with that, let's get into How Does It Make You Squeal? Because we're obviously just like about to fucking burst with How It Makes Us Squeal. So let's do it. How does that make you squeal? You squealing? I'm squealing, baby. Man, I'm squealing. So, like I said, first off, my pick, I did it for a very specific reason, and that's because I'm a huge fan of the book Count Dracula. I, I love it, or too. Or Dracula, right. you know. It's been one of my favorites since I was really young. As I've I mentioned on previous podcasts, like, my entry into horror movies was... I used to read about, like, old-school horror and shit. Like, the stuff you'd find in books in, like, the weird fiction and, like, quote-unquote occult section of the library. <laughs> nice. The sort of weird folklore shit that gets mixed in with, like, the New Age books and shit sometimes. And, like, you, you, you know, flick through until you find, like, oh, shit, this is the, the cra- you know, crazy. This, is, what I was this for. is the historical witchcraft shit. Like, what am I going to look through? And, you know, inevitably, most of those books would have a chapter where it would relate to pop culture somehow. Like, this is how folklore has influenced, you know, what you're seeing today. And so, I mean, vampires is folklore as shit. Oh, yeah, it goes way back. You know, many different cultures have had different different sorts of vampires. Not many of them are recognizable as what we see as movie vampires. Point. Some are simply, like, flying heads with, like, intestines dragging and shit. And, like, there's some fucked up vampires out there in the world, I'll tell you what. Well, that's the fun part, because there are different tales and variations on what a vampire is. Right. But, obviously, the huge influence and the one that made its big mark on pop culture history was the 1931 Universal Dracula. I love the Universal horror films. Um, After watching them all, I'd say now that Creature from the Black Lagoon is probably my favorite. But that first fascination with that style, Dracula, was like, vampires are awesome, especially, you know, it was like five-year-old, six-year-old me, like, (laughs) that's the coolest shit ever. Like, they're fucking dapper as shit, and like, fucking mind control and do this and that. And it, I just went into a huge information spiral, and I tried to read everything I could about fucking vampires, about Dracula, about this and that. So it eventually led me to Christopher Lee being my favorite Dracula, and Hammer films in general. Christopher Lee's what led me to Hammer. But this isn't a Hammer, as we already pointed out. Not even close. But this is possibly one of the most, the one of the closest to the book representations of Dracula on film in a huge way. And really... We were kind of talking about this earlier. This is probably going to be the episode where we talk very minimally <laughs> about this actual movie. Because there's not m- much to be said about the movie overall. Not really. It's a pretty linear story. It's easy to follow. If you're familiar with the Bram Stoker uh, Dracula novel itself, this film would be really easy to follow. I'd say what's remarkable about this movie isn't what it does. It's what makes it different. And so, as you pointed out, we have Quincy. I think there's like four, five film versions? I don't know. I, I, I didn't really look it up that well, but there's not that many film versions that include the character of Quincy Morris. I know that one film version combined Quincy with Arthur, and I think named him like Quincy Holmwood, something like that. I, I don't remember. Fuck. But that was always my in, because if you can't tell by my talking, I'm an American. <laughs> Likewise, I hope. And I grew up in a very like rural part of the United States, so I'm not from Texas, But when you have a Texan hanging out and being a fucking badass vampire killer 
and he's carrying a big old Bowie knife. I knew a bunch of people had Bowie knives. Like, I could have my hands on a Bowie knife in like 10 seconds, you yeah, know? Yeah, you were familiar with that. Yeah, I was familiar with Bowie knives. I was familiar with the, that sort of mentality, I guess, that he was supposed to be bringing. Like, when people don't know much about Montana, especially when I was like growing up and shit, and like, and they'd be like, yeah, what, what about this and that? Like, dude, we get stupid questions all the time. Like, don't you guys still have a problem with the Indians? I've heard oh, that. Yeah. Uh, like, things about like, do you guys still ride horses to school? Jesus, man shit like that and so if i really wanted to like convince like a super city person that i was really from montana there's no like stereotypical montana thing to do and so this the stereotype i would switch into would be like texan okay and that would convince them i'm from montana oh yeah yeah no (laughs) doubt it it was the most fucked up thing growing up but (laughs) I, i guess for maybe those people they were familiar with maybe that aspect of what rural meant Mm-hmm. But maybe, like I said, something that you could convey to them. But and yeah. so that just made what like is a that character. Montana? Yeah, I mean, yeah, Rock exactly. Beers, going hiking, floating. Who doesn't like that? But that was my in, and I was like, oh fuck, Quincy's my boy. And so that's one of the things that sets this movie apart. You have Quincy. He's involved in the end. He's he's the last person to give Lucy blood, just like in the book. The other thing that sets this movie apart. It was the only time Christopher Ridley enjoyed being Dracula. You know, that's a good point. I did read where he wanted to do this because it was really close to Stoker's vision of Dracula. In the Hammer films, he's a lot more hissy. And I like, I like it. But <laughs> I know he's what you like, mean by that. But he's more dramatic and like big face movements and into it and like getting up and looming into the screen and stuff. And in this, he gets to be much more suave and just sort of playing it a little bit more like a like a real person, I guess. Yeah. The character Dracula is supposed to have kind of sweeping movements and stuff. Bram Stoker based the physical movements and mannerisms of Dracula on a local actor by the last name of Irving. I can't remember his last name. I mean, his first name. Right. His version of Dracula in his head was supposed to pretty much be his buddy Irving. That's pretty awesome. Whatever Irving. And so his theatricality is supposed to be there. There are supposed to be some big, grandiose, sweeping movements, but he's still supposed to be a fucking, like, debonair count. He's not supposed to be like, Bleh. Yeah, I know you mean, just kind of come out and... Bleh. Also, Dracula with a mustache. That's just maybe the only time that he does have a mustache, if I'm not mistaken, as Dracula. I want to bring up what actually brought me to this movie in the first place. Um, I was just doing a lot of weird three in the morning, fucking just stoned out of my mind, like (laughs) deep like searches on like fucking rabbit holing on like Dracula and Vlad, the Impaler, which we'll get to. Oh, yeah. Christopher Lee and this and that. And I found... An article talking about what Dracula really looks like, according to police composite software. Nice. So they're just putting in data and letting. So they take his description from the book, which reads: "A tall old man, clean shaven, save for a long white mustache. His face was a strong, very strong aquiline with high bridge of thin nose, peculiarly." arched nostrils with lofty domed forehead his eyebrows were very massive almost meeting over the nose and with bushy hair that seemed to curl in its own profusion the mouth so far as i could see it under the heavy heavy mustache was fixed and rather cruel looking for the rest his ears were pale and at the tops extremely pointed the chin was broad and strong and the cheeks firm though thin the blue eyes transformed with fury there was a guy who was doing a series called Composites. His name is Brian Joseph Davies. And so he took that description. And there's what it came up with. Wow. 
How close is that? That is pretty close, isn't it? Now that you look at it. And so, of course, because of how close it is, the first comment wow. was, all you really need to do is watch El Conde Dracula. And I was like, oh shit, I need to watch this. Yeah. I'm like, apparently they nail it. And so I did it, and... Here we are. Yeah, like I said, here we are. So even the computer composite sketching says, hey, that's what he looks like. So that's kind of what led me to this particular one. God, what else sort of sets this movie apart? Oh, it was the very first Dracula movie where he gets younger as he feeds. That's correct, too, because throughout the film you do get to see that. Which, also, really cool. You get old Lee to young Lee, yeah. and it looks good the entire time. He's smooth Man, I, God, I love Christopher Lee. I'm so glad he's in this. Klaus Kinski. He film. has very, very, very little dialogue in this film, but his mannerisms and his portrayal of the Renfield character is fantastic. Yeah, I I mean, I, I'm probably going to pop back on Count Dracula here in a little bit, but Klaus Kinski, also nine years after this, played Count Dracula as well. Yeah, it's pretty awesome, isn't it? Which was another was huge... Was it in Nosferatu? Is that what it was? It was in Nosferatu the Vampire, right. which was the, the Werner Herzog remake of the 1922. Wow. Nosferatu by F.W. Murnau. Murnau's was... So, the interesting thing about the whole history of Dracula and how it actually ended up entering, like, the huge zeitgeist is the... How, I'm trying to remember the exact sequence of events. I might be a little bit off on some of the details, but... We're foggy for a reason. Yeah. It had strong initial reviews when it came out, but didn't really sell all that well. I think... Bram Stoker died before his wife, and by the end of his life, they were pretty poor off and stuff. And F.W. Murnau was going to make Nosferatu. He ends up being Count Orlok in the 1922, and it's because there was a big legal battle. All Nosferatu is is a ripoff of Dracula when you watch it. Exactly, because he couldn't do what he wanted to do, so in return, you got this different portrayal. That legal battle re-picked back sales back up. People knew what was going on, especially because this was a ver time period where there weren't that many movies coming out anyway, 1922. So the fact that there's a legal battle going Maybe on about one... Maybe top ten movies in 1922. Right. <laughs> like, what? Hold on. I don't even know one. So, you know, anything happening to a movie, if you followed the entertainment news at all, was probably some sort of news you would imagine. So that brought the sales back up to the point where they wanted to do, a, you know, another movie with it. When Universal went to acquire the rights, they found out that there was actually a screw-up with the... I think, I'm not sure if it was the application or... But something with the U.S. copyright law. And it was actually public domain in the U.S. Oh, Interesting. However, after that point, when they got to make Count Dracula because of... Or Dracula, I keep saying Count, but... When they got to make the 1931 Universal Dracula, after that point, it's never been out of print. Now that I think about that, you can look out... Like you said, through that time period, from the 30s, 40s, 50s, all the way through now, there have been copious amounts of vampire films... He looks at mainly a derivative of Dracula, Nosferatu, those things, but from those two characters on forward, I mean... You could go through a lineage, who knows how long. So when they remade Nosferatu as Nosferatu the Vampire, they switched it back to actually being Count Dracula. There's some interesting things that got borrowed from the Orlok character too that get brought up in this film due to the fact because sunlight has an effect 
So there's certain things that gets borrowed. Uh, yeah, I'm trying to think what else sets this movie apart. I'd say that most other movies don't have Lucy also being beheaded. Yeah, that's a good. Point. I'd say most Dracula movies only have her getting staked. In the book, she also has her mouth filled with garlic after she gets beheaded as well. Most movies don't have the gypsies. I was thinking about, like I said, the uh, parallels between certain Draculas that we're familiar with. And do they do this? Do they do that? Or do they use these characters, etc.? That's something that I noticed as well, the gypsies in this film. I think I'm a little bit hazy on this. It's been a little bit since I read Dracula, and I meant to try to demolish it this week, but had other stuff come up, dentist appointment and such. Yeah, there's a lot to fill. I know what you mean. But... I believe the firefight with the gypsies at the end was a little bit bigger of a deal in the book. Like, there was more of a firefight along with, like, the dropping of the boulders and bullshit. Yeah, because, um, which we'll mention a little bit, that, that scene was a little bit crunched, like you said. However, it is, in the movie, they do get it right that it's Jonathan and Quincy that get Dracula. The only thing that they get wrong is how they do it. In the movie, they light him on fire and then push him into a ravine. In the book... Quincy's mortally wounded from the gypsies, but they still manage to get up in Dracula's shit. And Quincy stabs his Bowie knife through Dracula's heart, while Harker chops his head off with a kukri. And I think almost immediately, the sun also breaks, Yeah. and the body dissolves to ash. If I'm not mistaken, I think you are absolutely correct on that. By the way, no wooden stake involved. I mean, that's always the, the classic cliche, right? The fucking wooden stake. Yeah, how many I think times it's, have you seen it's that? only Lucy that got the wooden stake. Good point. Somewhere along the line, somebody took that a little far, mm-hmm. and it became its own thing, like a meme. Right. And so I thought it was neat that they at least got those two together at the end doing it. There are certain things that you would hope they would portray as factual, you know, if you're going to do a version of it, you know? Mm-hmm. I mean, I was trying to think here for a second... I think that covers, like, all the, the cool, neat things that really tied in, but that's a lot of shit that none of these other Dracula movies really do, and it was so neat to finally find a version that does all of that on screen. Yeah, with, and it follows With it the amazingness of Klaus Kinski and Christopher Lee. They do a really good job. I mean, I think everybody involved in this film, from top to bottom, and given the fact of its budget and its limitations and the reasons why it was filmed in so many different locations, it just shows you how really good of a film and the director's vision and how they portrayed everybody in the film according to the book, etc. Um, beautiful backdrops. They filmed yeah. a lot of it in Barcelona. They got some really good shots of castles. The castles and... all feel... I mean, they're not, I guess, the quote-unquote historical Dracula, which I also yeah. want to get to. It's uh, <laughs> <laughs> important. Would have been, uh, obviously, being Barcelona versus Wallachia and Romania, Transylvania. Transylvania. And yeah. Probably different time periods being represented as well, I would imagine, depending exactly. on when those castles were made that they were filming at. But I would imagine maybe a couple of centuries apart, close maybe. to it, maybe, yeah. Still, though, it, it was fantastic backdrops. All felt very... It still felt right. Even though it might not have been right, it felt right. I think the choice, like you said, of landscapes and buildings and structures in general gave an authentic feel to what the film was trying to portray. That being said, maybe not the most exciting Dracula movie of all time. It's one that you really have to go into it with a certain mood. <laughs> you know, Are you in the mood to really you have to sit through this and, and appreciate it? If you're already a fan of... Christopher Lee, or of Jess Franco, or of Soledad Miranda, or of Bram Stoker's Dracula, then you should watch this, absolutely. I would agree. 
if you're a fan of any one of those things, you should watch this. It's definitely worth your time. However, otherwise, you might be in for a bit of a slow movie. I was kind of curious, and I had to keep checking. Harker doesn't even get to Castle Dracula till the 15-minute mark. He does kind of lollygag a bit in the beginning of the film, all the way up to the point where he does enter the castle. I mean, it's interesting. I do like the, the little stories that are attached to it when he's stopping at the train station, has a conversation with the, the fellow passenger about where he's going, and immediately the mood changes, right? Mm-hmm. He's happy that he's getting to go to visit Count Dracula because he wants to be a lawyer. The guy drops the big bomb on him. He's like, you know... You better hope God is in the presence, mm-hmm. or at least to help you. Oh, shit. They kind of include a little bit of that sequence with the wolves and stuff, which is... <laughs> what did you think about that, that they it's... used German shepherds? Right, I was like, mm. I think I'd just run up to them and tell them they're good doggos. I know, it's like, just throw them a couple kibbles and bits, and, you know, all right, guys, get out of here. Cool. We have visitors. <laughs> yeah. Oh, it, it was... come here. There, yeah. good buddy. No, thinking, too, that this is partly a German film. Mm-hmm. And the fact that they use German shepherds, maybe they were shooting in West Germany at that time. So it's the closest thing they can get to wolves. Yeah, something, man. I'm I'm not quite sure right now. I'll tell you what, but it was interesting. There was a couple of things I had mentioned too with you, and some of the scenes they were trying to shoot as night scenes. You could tell they were using possibly filters to oh, block yeah. out some of the sunlight coming in. <laughs> And that the, was, the, the fog they were using, like the, the smoke effect. It's really noticeable the very first time he turns into a giant bat. Oh, no doubt. <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> There's some funny scenes. I, they're funny in the fact that you know what's going on and you know what they're trying to do. Just they were limited in what they could do. I'm trying to think if there's any good things that they cut from the book that they didn't quite get to. Because this is only an hour 30 minute movie. Or hour 36 minutes, something like that. Yeah, 36, 37, somewhere there like that. And... Because the weird thing is, is all the action is basically packed into the last eight minutes. For it's like really part, yeah. slow up until then. For, for, from what I watched and what I gathered out of it, and this is the fact that I got out of it, was the fact that it was mostly about Dracula getting into that state across from Van Helsing's, knowing that he saw the picture because Harker shared the picture mm-hmm. with Dracula. They didn't have him come across on the, the ship and stuff, did they? No, I think... And crash, or not crash, but like drain the crew and shit. No. Yeah, yeah, no. no. It was mostly like, oh, well, he got here because of the coffins. They transported him that way. And they got the coffins of the brides, but then they had to hunt down his secondary coffin? I'm trying to remember it all now. I kind of... That's a good point, too. The point is, in the book... Because there was a In the point, he has bought up a shit ton of property, and they get 49 of his coffins. God damn. But he escapes with the 50th. <laughs> yes, which I guess be right and dirty. <laughs> yeah. 49? Like, what? Yeah. Nope, 50, bitch. 50. <laughs> because he's just bought up a shit ton of property yeah. and has all sorts of coffins just they laying They do around. allude to the fact that they need to sanctify every single grave they come across. Mm-hmm. But I don't know how much that goes back to what you're speaking of either. Well, I know it has to be... The grave soil has to be from his homeland. So that would make sense. That's why they can just like get rid of one, and it's not like he can just rebuild one or something because he's in fucking London now. He doesn't have shit from Romania. London calling. So, but no, there there was really good ways that they. When I say they, you know, just Franco and the production company, etc. How they did, you know, really follow the book. You know, I think they did. Yeah, like I said, uh, this movie it really feels like we were talking about it earlier. It could have been either. 10 minutes shorter or 40 minutes longer and it'd be like just perfect yeah. mm-hmm. 
If you if you stretch out that end the way it deserves, I and think maybe that's, add that's in a good middle. point too. That that scene should have been a little bit more cinematic, dramatic, you know, for its intended purposes. I felt like it could have been shorter in terms of how they how certain scenes were shot. Mm-hmm. Like that doesn't really need to be in it, you know. Stuff or maybe like more action beats in the beginning somewhere. Yeah, you know, kind of pick like up adding the in the the him on on the ship getting yeah getting the pacing like I said it's a little stuff. slow, but it's still a, an enjoyable film. Interior shots are really pretty, man. Inside the bedroom sequences, you know, the interactions with Christopher Lee and, and the actresses in the film. Mm-hmm. He does uh, a good job. And there's some stuff that I want to get back to. But before I get to that, you got excited when I, you found out more about this movie, too. Oh, definitely. And I got more excited when I started reading about the guy that you got excited about. This movie is directed by a guy known as Jess Franco. Right. I, I suppose his birth name, maybe, is Jesus Franco or Jesus Franco. Mm-hmm. And if I'm not mistaken, he is a Spanish film director. He's known, most notable, and we just finished doing an exploitation film. I thought that was so weird. I was like, we just did a black exploitation horror movie. And I maybe had spoken way too early and saying, I don't know how soon we'll get to talk about exploitation again, but here we are. So this movie is fantastic. Jess Franco is definitely known for this movie. Way more known for the fact that he's done a shit ton of nunsploitation, sexploitation, vampire sexploitation. Oh yeah, sexy time playstation. Uh, I got what do you call the the SS? I think that's what you call it, SS exploitation or, or Nazi exploitation. And fucking women behind bars. Literally, one of his movies is women behind bars, no, and I'm he's done the the prison subgenre of exploitation as well. The fucking women behind bars. They have some interesting titles, but that's exactly what the whole film was about. They're, this guy is mostly known films. for basically making porn. Yeah, like I don't know how to I don't part. know how to explain sexploitation uh, because it's not quite the same as porn, but no. it's not. It's hard to... The way he does it, it's more told from a woman's angle in terms of that style of exploitation. So it's not gratuitous in terms of a man's point of view where it'd be very misogynistic. A lot of his female protagonists are really strong characters. For example, I've, I've seen like Vampiros Lesbos, Female Vampire. I was going to say, the next, pro- the next most famous of, films, of his movies would probably be Vampiros Lesbos. Yeah, one of his black and white films that is... I hope maybe, maybe, because it's not really horror, it kind of is, but it's more sci-fi-ish, is The Diabolical Dr. Z. That film is brilliant, really well shot. But these other films, like I said, as far as their female characters, mostly Soledad Miranda, and then later on, Lena Romay, because I don't know how early it is, or if we want to talk about that yet. No, we can get into that for sure. But unfortunately, at the time that she was doing these films, she wasn't very well known. But she was on the way of signing a big contract to do films, I think, in Germany and some other countries. But Soledad Miranda. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Soledad Miranda. So, unfortunately, she and her husband and her son were in vacation, I think, in Lisbon, Portugal. And they got into a car accident, and she died, I think, a little bit later in the hospital in a coma because she'd suffered some dramatic head mm-hmm. uh, trauma. And her husband survived, and so did her son. But... Because later on, Jess Franco was known for doing these exploitation films, and because of the fact that he used her, she was essentially his first muse. Yeah, for like six films. movies or something, all done right. in the same year. She hustled, and when I say hustled, I don't mean she, you know, 
she was an actress who was very determined. She was willing to do movies and, you know, any way to get her name out. Mm-hmm. But like I said, unfortunately, she was on the way of really reaching her true stardom or what she thought was going to be her true stardom. But she became more of a cult figure because of a lot of Jess Franco movies. I realized I actually knew a few of his movies as well when I started looking through uh, his filmography. I was a little bit more familiar with him for the uh, Christopher Lee Fu Manchu movies, as well as uh, one of the first times we got to mention exploitation movies on this podcast was Cannibal Holocaust with uh, the cannibal subgenre of exploitation, and he did Mondo Cannibale, (laughs) which I'm also familiar with. So I was like, oh, that's awesome. However, as we mentioned, he's mostly known for a lot of sexploitation stuff, and that's mostly through his second muse, after Soledad Miranda. I'm glad you're pointing that out. He met an actress who ended up becoming his wife, eventually. Lena Romain. Mm-hmm. Yeah, the film and that I actually own, and I brought it over, I'll take a snap picture later on, because yeah. we're doing some stuff that we'll talk about, I hope, probably toward the end of the episode, but... Lena Ramey starred in a film that I own called Female Vampire. So he was still doing these female vampire, but they were more what I call sexy time films because they were bordering on softcore porn, mm-hmm. voyeuristic, perhaps, exhibitionist, perhaps. But still a really good films. But I mean, it's like watching what is Cinemax, maybe not as gratuitous, but on that it's, border, it's like an Emmanuel style, you know, yeah. that kind of nature. Sexy is what I what I call it. Sexy time movies. Yeah, sexy time. You know what you're going to get. And, I mean, at certain points throughout interviews and stuff, she confirmed that she's a bit of an exhibitionist. It makes sense. She ended up, I think, helping write a few of them as well and directing one or two movies that he produced, something yeah, like that. Yeah, she got really involved with, like I said, from the point that I suppose she got involved in his films and to the point they, you know, became a couple. She was highly involved all the way to the end of his, you know, his his death and hers, unfortunately, but committed a couple. Now, here's the thing that fucking almost broke my mind when I started reading about him. This guy was able to pull off. One of the other things he's kind of known for is the fact that he put out 160 movies in his lifetime. Like we said, he did six movies with Soledad Miranda in one year. The way he was able to do this was he ripped off his fucking producers and shit. Oh. And how he would do this is he would be filming two or three movies at a time, have the same actors do scenes for the other movies without them knowing it, thinking that they were just doing one movie. And later in his editing process, the two, like, three-hour movies would become three two-hour movies. Or, you know. I know what you mean. Depending on how they cut the films, like I said, how they edited it, he got a bundle of films. Yeah, he got an extra film or two while the producers thought he was filming just one movie. I'm glad you say that because it makes sense when you look at how many films these characters, I'm not saying characters, but actors and actresses are credited to his films. And now because of that, I wonder how much of that Some of them, they didn't even know that they starred in some of those movies until later on. It's like, how convoluted was this fucking script? And, oh my god, here's the one other thing. 160 movies, most of them like sexploitation, nunsploitation, all this shit that we're talking about. Most of them sound made up. They kind of do. We were talking about it right before we got into this section about, was it 1959 film, I think it is, or 58? You know, I, I just want to just, like, choose some of these no, you at should. random. you should. Like, just at random, we have, uh, oh shit, we have Linda's Hot Nights, The Erotic Exploits of Marciste and Atlantis. In Atlantis. 
The Lovers of Devil's Island. There are some very interesting titles for these films. Uh, oh, there are some great ones that I saw. Should I mention the one that I... Sexual Aberrations of a Married Woman. This is crazy. <laughs> the one that I wanted to mention really quick. Okay, yeah, yeah, what's the one? <laughs> we Are 18 Years Old. Oh, right. He did the screenplay, the story in 1959 for that. It's like, wow, that is that is really saucy. The Shadow of Judoka versus Dr. Wong. <laughs> Dude, yeah, how made up do these fucking sound? The Killer Wore Black Socks. <laughs> That's funny. How Much Does a Spy Cost? Yes. Oh, here's a good one. For the Babies, Warm Cream. For the Babies, Warm Cream. Wow. <laughs> well, yeah. Tribulations of a Cross-Eyed Buddha. This is funny. Mary Cookie and the Killer Tarantula. Yeah, Killer Barbies versus Dracula. Revenge of the Alligator Ladies. <laughs> a butt crack for two. <laughs> what? Oh my gosh. Oh, I think he just uh, was in that one. That was actually Lena Romay's first solo directing That's job. That's cool, man. That's funny. <laughs> Lillian the Perverted face. Virgin. The Night Has a Thousand Sexes. Wanda the Wicked Warden. The House of the Lost Women. There's one. Barbed Wire Dolls. Dude, Jeez, it just goes on. Like I said, the he, perverse countess. Yeah, so the naked super witches of the Rio Amore, and not just a few. Like what would you say, over 160 films. 160 films, and we maybe listed off 10 to, to what, 12, 20, maybe 20. 20. Say 20. Yeah, I was I listed off quite a few there. So yeah, I agree you did, but uh, <laughs> not not that I have anything against it because that's really cool, man. We just barely scratched the surface. But the point being is that he really did hustle to get these films out, and. I suppose during that time period, because he's Spanish, and how how often is he going to be able to get to do films unless he does what he has to do to make these films? Much later, he got this success. During that time period, probably not much, if at all. He just wanted to get the, those films out there and get that exposure out there now because we get to see his vision much later on because of these different distributors who picked up these films, mm-hmm. you know, put them out. And, so I'm, I'm happy about that because there's a lot of these films that you can get your hands on. Yeah, yeah. I've got my hands on quite a few. We keep coming back to him, and I want to talk about Klaus Kinski again. Yes, please, let's do it, because um, he's an interesting character, man. You know, I didn't read too, too much about him, just because there are some things I already knew about him, yeah. where I'm like, I don't want to... I want to praise his performance, because I was glued to the screen the entire time. Great job. Every time he was on screen as Renfield, I was glued to the screen. He is fantastic in this movie. He's great, and for a few dollars more... Yeah. Also, I actually haven't watched The Great Silence yet. I keep meaning to. However, The Great Silence is important to bring up if you know Django Unchained. It was the inspiration for the winter sequences. He's in that and very famous for his role in that. The Wrath of God. I can't say the dude's first name. It's That's, like uh, Aguirre? Yeah, maybe? something like that. Aguirre? Something. I don't know. I don't fucking know. But uh, Dr. Zhivago? Yeah. Another film. Marquis de Sade's Justine, Venus and Furs, Web of the Spider. I hated Jack the Ripper. Nosferatu, which we talked about a little earlier. He did one called Cobra Verde, which all that means is Green Cobra, maybe? Yeah. And he did a adaptation, might be mistaken, he's either a violinist or a cellist. I think he's a violinist. Paganini. So, I mean, he's he's done a lot of films. He was known as a really racy character off-screen. Yeah, I mean, this dude is supposed to be pretty volatile, just sexing up the entire I was going to say, I, I, from what I understand, he's kind of a sexual deviant. And Well, I was going to say, uh, he's no, he was known during his lifetime for having Multiple affairs. Multiple affairs, yeah. 
later it came out that apparently he was also molesting his daughters yeah. which is why i don't want to necessarily i don't want to praise the guy really have to expound or expound on that but yeah. i don't want to praise the guy but the fact is he delivered amazing performances that will live on and only enhance this movie that's kind of what the point is, is that we're not really covering that side of his life we're more covering the fact that he does give a really good performance in this film regardless of that all that outside information not that we're condoning it but just saying and maybe that's something you guys should know in case you just don't want to watch the movie because Well, yeah, that. I mean, maybe that's a part of the warning that you know now. And I don't really have much else to say other than he was fantastic in this movie, and he is great in pretty much everything he's in. I read a little bit that... <laughs> I'm not sure how true this is, but I did read a little bit that the flies and the bugs that he eats in the film mm-hmm. were real. I don't know how true that is, but perhaps... I wouldn't doubt it. So there's that about Klaus Kinski... There was a film I was looking at on, on eBay, thinking about picking up that he was in, but uh, I didn't get around to it. But anywho, I was trying to think of some other ones. Like, so we did mention one one person I did want to mention because mm-hmm. she is in the film. She plays Mina Harker as Maria Rome. Oh, now this is the story that I kind of wanted to bring up because this ties in two people involved in the film. One being Maria Rome, and one being the producer of this film, Harry Allen Towers, part of the Towers of London Productions. This guy, he did. A lot of films, like so, were was involved with Jess Franco, so he helped with a lot of production of his films. Here's a really interesting thing about this guy that I didn't want to bring up was that he was involved in espionage. Oh, most oh. yeah, most notably being a spy for the USSR during the Red Scare. Holy shit! <laughs> so here's a little thing that I was reading, and this is if you're interested out there listening, you can find on the Wikipedia page on Mr. Towers. Is in 1961. This is before he was married to Maria Rom. He was with his girlfriend at the time, Miss Novotny. He was charged with operating a vice ring. And if people are not familiar with what vice rings are, I guess maybe a proper or a technical term for a prostitution ring. Mm-hmm. So he was involved in that at a New York hotel. But he skipped bail and he went to Europe, right? So during this time, her testimony being Novotny, his girlfriend at the time, she told this to the FBI. She said that he was a Soviet agent responsible for providing compromising information on individuals that would help the USSR. Lobster Magazine, which ran an article in 1963, they said that they were stating their sources who said that Towers was linked with, among others, Stephen Ward, Peter Lawford, the Soviet Union in a vice ring at the United Nations. Hearst Corporation, there's a newspaper company, they were running papers that mentioned Tower's name in 63 in an article that it was kind of a coded reference. Mm -hmm. They said that he had a liaison before John F. Kennedy took the White House and Novotny, a known prostitute. So later on, the charges were dropped because you pay like a 4,200 British pound fine like in 1980. So it's almost, it's like, wow, this guy was... He was known for helping Jess Franco in his films, but on the side, he was running prostitution rings and hooking up people from the United Nations and being a Soviet spy. It's <laughs> like, damn, damn, how salty is this guy? Right? Jesus. So that was a little side nugget because his wife later on, or during that time period, is Maria Rom. I'm not going to lie. All I have left are side nuggets, but there's yeah. a couple things I do want no, to get to. Yeah, exactly. Uh, I do... Now, as you mentioned, on the Devil Rides Out episode, we got very deep into Christopher Lee. <laughs> well, yeah, we did. Um, Balls deep. And like I said, I did like 22 facts from an article and stuff. Awesome too. And I, I really enjoyed doing that episode. I think it is actually one of the stronger episodes we've ever done. So please go check it out if you haven't. We would love if you did that. But even if you don't, 
I don't want to just leave them all there. Yeah. So I'm just going to choose like five facts at random that I can yeah, just no, think no, of off top of my head. Like I said, the, the more citing of my sources would be going back and checking out that episode. These are just ones that I can try to recall right now yeah, to try to let you know how interesting this guy is because this is just nuts. He's the center of the fucking Hollywood universe. Remember how many degrees? Jesus, no. I, I do remember. Cause do you remember? I'm a nerd with numbers. 2.59. Okay, so, two, yeah. So, you know, like six degrees of Kevin Bacon people. You know, every, you know, everybody's connected by six degrees, six different people. Cut that in half. More than half, actually. More than half. Christopher Lee can connect to almost any actor in the Hollywood universe in less than three steps. He's pretty much, for lack of a better term, the black hole of... I guess the whole cinema universe. Because I think he starred in more movies than any other person. What do you say, like two, almost 260? Or he was in, I'm not sure. Well, and he was probably leading man in most of those two, yeah, honestly. Well, he, what he was the, the most, or the tallest leading man. He was the tallest leading man at six foot five. With how, how many, many films movies? do you remember he oh, God, uh, did fencing know. in? <laughs> like seventeen, I think. Something. Yeah, he was the he was <laughs> the person. Who, yeah, he was the person to appear in most films with a sword fight. When honestly, I have to I have to come clean with this. When you started mentioning some of those, I was thinking about the sources, but then actually I remember watching a video. I think I found it on YouTube where Christopher Lee is talking about these things specifically his swordsmanship and fencing. But at first I was like, man, this sounds like a lot of bullshit. Yeah. <laughs> but no, this is fucking legit. He was special intelligence in World War II for the British. He was, he was basically yeah. British Special Forces, the Special Operations Executive, which was the yes, Ministry yeah. of Ungentlemanly at Warfare. I love that. How awesome Jesus, that just the craziest shit. Most of his missions are still classified, as far as I know. I remember you were saying that. I think uh, that I remember was when he was engaged. I can't remember her name right off the top of my head. It was like a Swedish... Royalty. Oh yeah, dude didn't like him. Like her, her, she was like a contessa, or no? His mom was a contessa. She was something though. Yeah, something of that nature. There was some kind of. Oh yeah, his mom involved. was a fucking contessa. Yeah. And through her, he's d descended from Charlemagne and Robert Lee. Oh, he's directed to Robert E. He's related. Charlemagne to, and Robert E. Lee because of he's that not descended album. from Robert E. Lee though. Oh, the name right. He's like distant cousins well, with him. Yeah, that and Ian Fleming. I yes. That was another cool thing. Uh, he was friends with Boris Karloff, who was most famously known as the Universal Mummy, not because he worked with him later on on two different films, but because they were actually neighbors. That's pretty cool. Hello, neighbor. Yeah. How awesome would that be? Anyway, like I said, we'd list all sorts of shit. That's just some of the amazing some of the things, things about I Christopher Lee. Like you said you were mentioning, but that's some really cool shit knowing about Christopher Lee and knowing that this is one of the four films that he did as Dracula. The only one that was not a Hammer production. Yeah, and so, I guess the only other thing, I don't want to go into it too much unless I can make it at least a little bit interesting, but I yeah. just always found it, because of how close this movie is to the original source material, and the fact that we only talked about the actual movie itself for like 10 minutes, <laughs> it just made me that. sort of think about the fact that like, everyone at this point I think has heard of the source material, supposed source material, because it's hard to really uh, see where Stoker got his inspiration for Dracula, was probably a medley of sources, especially because of that some of the... period. Especially because of the time period and stuff, and some of the other things that were famous. Varney the Vampire, and some of the other things of that time period. But, I mean, the most prominent thing, especially because of some of the things that are brought up in the book and in this movie, because they're lifted directly from the book, is that he was most likely... Vlad the Third, Prince of Wallachia, most famously known as Vlad the Impaler. The Impaler. Who was one of the coolest 
Oh my god. Bad so, guys of all time. Yeah, one of the coolest bad guys of all time. Vlad the Impaler, probably most famously known for impaling a fuck ton of enemies. Yeah. By when I say impaling, I mean like a giant stake placed into the ground and the person is lowered being impaled in various positions probably. Yeah. Most notably maybe Yeah, right up the bum usually. Yeah. Sometimes like the taint. I think sometimes like more like stomach and shit yeah. and like through that way. I could see that. It's very I think it, I think it kind of depended on what they were being sentenced for and like what kind of mood Man. he was in and shit. When I say a fuck ton, I'm not saying little. Are little fuck ton. Well, uh, so just out of curiosity, like total, I, I can't I'm think. Not, not I can't think of total, total numbers just off the top of my head. But I believe that when the Janissary host was following him, God, I can't remember the years, but it was at the okay. time. It was at the time it was being led by his brother Radu the Handsome, which is I kind of want to get into that a little bit, which I think I'll hear in a little bit. Yeah, I know a little bit about Radu. When he fled because he was vastly, vastly outnumbered, and he fled for like three days and made it back to his castle at Tergoviste. I believe that's how you say it. I'm not really good with Romanian, but... It's okay. Viste, maybe? I don't know. Like a day beforehand or something. He took all of his prisoners of war, all of his Turkish Ottoman prisoners of war, and staked them as a forest of the dead outside the castle. And I believe the numbers was, like, between ten to 20,000? Good night. I'm telling a forest of the dead. Yeah. He was outgunned. They could have laid siege to Turgoviste and probably taken it not that hard. They came up over the ridge. Supposedly, the front lines, most of them just stopped in place and fucking hurled. Could you imagine? I wouldn't want to, but could you? And they didn't attack. They're, no. Yeah, it's like, mm, I think we're going to leave this one alone. Plus, their actions of trying to do that just got 10,000s in their prisoner war just slaughtered like that because he wasn't going to fuck around. And the entire time that they were chasing him, even though it was kind of in his landscape, he was doing the tactic where you fucking don't leave anything behind. You're fucking burning things along the way and not leaving anything usable in your path. Okay. Like they did in fucking... In the Civil War and shit. They just raised... Scorched Earth. Okay, Scorched Earth. Yeah. Scorched... He was doing total Scorched Earth policy where he just wasn't fucking... He wasn't leaving anything useful for the armies in his wake. He was fucking burning fields so his entire way. And just being like, nope. I'm going home. <laughs> and he's been doing that for like three days straight or like a week Gosh, or whatever as yeah. they've been trying to follow his force. And they come up over the ridge and you fucking run into a forest to the dead. Now, get this. He's remembered as a national hero. Him, his father and his grandfather are all remembered as national heroes over there because they were in charge of keeping the Ottoman Turks from invading into the West, basically, yeah, yeah. through some of those passes in that area. And not only did they do so very well, he was remembered, although as being cruel, as very just. He didn't treat anybody as more special than anybody else when he was sentencing his crimes. And one of his first things that he did when he assumed the position of, I can't say the real word right, but its closest thing is prince anyway. Okay. It's not quite a prince, but the closest. Close, yeah. It's a voivode or something like that. I've never actually heard it said oh, out loud. I, think I know what you mean, yeah. I think I've seen the spelling of it. Yeah. yeah. I've never actually heard it said out loud, so... Yeah. One of those words. Okay. I'm sure we've all run across those at different I think times. I know what you mean, yeah. Uh, was he basically fucking took all the corrupt nobles out of power, 
kicked them all down to the fucking dirt and was like, you guys have been fucking ruining this entire place, scheming up all the fucking wealth for yourselves, have everybody fucking at each other's throats, I'm done with it, fucking killed a bunch of them right off the bat, <laughs> and took a lot of the others out of power, which was eventually his downfall a couple times. One of the weird things is there was a lot of infighting in the region at the time. So although they were all sworn... I guess it would have been the Holy Roman Empire, I guess. I'm not and defending and defending against the Ottoman Turks on the other side. That didn't always mean that they were partnered with the Holy Roman Empire to make that happen. Part of Vlad's childhood was very much and his brother's childhood was very much influenced by the fact that his father actually made a deal with the Turks and sided with them to regain power, but that kept them from coming through that pass. Part of the deal was every year he had to send a certain amount of Wallachian boys to be trained in the fucking Turkish army. Wow. And he had to send his two sons as tribute. So they were raised in the court of the enemy. Vlad came to despise the Turks <laughs> and his time there. And some of how he was treated, possibly treated, might have influenced some of his later actions. His brother, on the other hand, became famously, possibly, the lover of the Sultan. Which is where he earned the name Radu the Handsome, or <laughs> Radu the Fair. <laughs> because guess what? When you earned nicknames back then, it usually was kind of a joke on you. Yeah, they weren't uh, terms of endearment. <laughs> they were more, yeah, like I said, they were more snides. And so his brother at most actually ended up converting to Islam <laughs> wow. and partnered with the, the sultan for most of his life and at certain times ruled that same region of Wallachia that Vlad did. Because I think he ruled like three or four different times like Jesus. over the course of his life. There was seriously a power struggle going on. People were getting offed all the time. Huh. Vlad was eventually released when his father was killed by the famous Hungarian John Hunyadi, I believe known as the White Knight, but I might be wrong on that. <laughs> Still, it's pretty neat, man. It's, it shows you the historical aspect of the inspiration behind Bram Stoker, like you were saying. Look how deep that gets, man. And his pretty grandfather deep. is actually known as, I might actually get this one right, All right Mircha go. the Great. Mircha the Great? Yeah. yeah. Nice. That's pretty cool. Dracula, the name also comes mostly from his father. Vlad III, the Impaler, who was the actual inspiration, was never known as Dracula in his lifetime. That only came after. That makes sense. His father was known as Vlad Dracul because he was initiated by King Sigismund of Hungary into the Order of the Dragon to help protect sense. against the Ottoman Empire. And, like, internal threats or something. I can't remember what they I do remember that. The, the whole... The reason behind the Dracula name. Vlad Dracul, at that point, was so, I guess, over the moon with that. I think yeah. he was mostly raised in the court of King Sigismund because of shit having to do with his father. And... Because he was, like, the bastard son of Mircha. I don't okay. think he was, like, an acknowledged son. Gotcha. And... So there was, like, fighting between Mircha and Basarab and shit like that. I, I don't remember it all. God, it's a lot of shit. It was a long time ago. <laughs> it's a long time ago in a part of the world that I don't live in. <laughs> yeah. So excuses if we're... But he was like, yeah, fucking, I'm all about that. You know, Order the Dragon, That's which dope, also is... Dracul is also the devil in Romanian, apparently. Yeah. So, or, which was kind of weird, Whatever. but it would have been dragon. So he started, when he ruled, he had all their coins stamped with the dragon. 
I've heard some debate over this, and I don't know either of the languages to know for sure. For a long time, I always heard that Dracula would be, you know, son of Dracul. But later, what I've seen more lately, and I'm not sure quite which is true, and maybe somebody can clear it up for me because I'd really like it, is that Dracula was first more referred to the coins because it wouldn't be Dracula to be son of Dracul in Romanian. You would do it differently in Romanian. That's how you would do it in Hungarian, though. Okay. <laughs> That's interesting, isn't it? I'm not positive. Like I said, I don't actually know either of the There's languages. There's a lot of influence but... coming from all those directions in that little area. Mm -hmm. you know, so it's, I can see how it can be misconveyed depending on how you interpret it. But he was known as a very just ruler during his time, to the point where, once again, I'm not sure the veracity of this, but one of the tales that's told about him is that most villages had a gold cup at the village well that anyone could use, and it wasn't tied down to anything, huh. <laughs> because everyone was so afraid to steal it, because they knew that if you're a criminal, you're going to get punished. He was the punisher before the punisher existed. It, <laughs> yeah. does, it didn't matter the crime. If you're a criminal, you're going to get punished. But as long as you were obeying the law, you were good to go. If you, as long as you were wow. obeying the law, he's giving you a fucking gold cup to drink out of at your well. As long as you stay within those confines of his terms, what's the big deal? I want to drink out of it. And all he was asking is, don't steal the gold cup. Yeah. You know what I mean? Pay your taxes. Exactly. Don't be stupid, or else you'll get the wrath. Don't, yeah, don't do stupid shit. Like, at that point, you would know that you're going to get some pain if you do something stupid. Right. his role, so yeah. <laughs> Damn. Different yeah. times, eh? There are, I believe, accounts of, of him being fighting as, as almost a berserker in battle as well, because I believe one of the, the differences that you would think of between a voivode and a normal prince is that voivode is more of like a warrior prince. It was more of not just a ruler, but like a general slash ruler, gotcha. whereas there was a noble class that wasn't as involved with the fighting or the fighting yeah, and stuff the front lines or whatnot mm -hmm. yeah i mean it makes total sense and i'm sense not positive how that all works but i do know that he also was a, a very competent general who often fought outnumbered and was a, an excellent tactician and an extremely capable warrior himself it's pretty amazing isn't it i mean that terrain there too is not with long flowing mustaches Mustaches by the way for that's a, you know what that's what that's my whole takeaway from this movie watch it for mustache dracula well, that's it's interesting because of the fashion that beards and mustaches are getting these days. So it's not that we're doing this purposely, but maybe inadvertently we're following this trend of mustachioed characters. And uh, it, it goes all the way back to this time period as well. But I hope I didn't bore you too much with my history lesson. No, I think it's important because... And there's a lot of stories about the guy. Seriously, well, yeah. read on Vlad Dracula. Like, I mean, most of them end up with him impaling somebody. So I guess if you don't want to be like really morbid yeah. and read about like... Some of this shit, have to get, then know, I guess you don't do necessarily have to go into it. But usually some of them have things to do with like, oh God, there's another one with like, I think some ambassadors showed up and refused to remove their turbans in his presence when they bowed to him. Right. And so he took it as a sign of his disrespect and had their turbans nailed to their heads and their heads lopped off and sent back as his response. Jeez. So... Don't be disrespect to homie. Yeah, something like that. I, wow. I mean, there was more to it than that, but I know that he nailed Still. some fucking turbans to some motherfuckers' heads. So. You no, know what I was going to say, the reason why this is important is because it does show you how involved the whole Dracula character is, if you want to take it to a historical aspect. 
Mm -hmm. The whole origin story. Like I said, that wouldn't have been the only origin. However, in the book and in this movie, there's a number of speeches that reference, you know, who fought the Turks across the Danube time and time again. Yeah, exactly. I mean, some of this stuff, I mean... Some of this stuff could only point to Vlad the Third. Yeah. It's interesting. I mean, shit. Mm -hmm. But still fun. There was two things I did want to mention, because I can't think of anything else I wanted to mention outside of the score was one of the things that I did want to mention, because it was done by Bruno Nicolai, Italian composer. He and Ennio Morricone worked a lot on films. They, uh, I think they met at a conservatory, and they became friends, and like I said, they started working together. Morricone, or Morricone, was more known for doing westerns. Yes, but I mean, he's the... Exactly, so... That's good. So if you're familiar with that, Diddly by Tyler. <laughs> Tyler's Diddly. <laughs> Iconic, right? Iconic mm-hmm. music composer. Bruno Nicolai being no slouch. He worked on a lot of films with Jess Franco. And some of the films that he did, he also did with Italian filmmakers that were known for doing giallos. Giallos being the Italian word for yellow. Why yellow? Because they used, when they wrote, giallos back then so giallos signify what a crime or mystery thriller kind of book it would be so they would use yellow as its binding cover be it a hardcover or or paperback i think most know it'd be paperback and it wasn't just any type of crime it was the pulp crime oh the early pulp crime which once again ties back into exploitation because a lot of the roots of the early exploitation is just the movie evolved form of wild of pulp fiction and weird fiction they're really suspenseful i mean i own quite a collection of giallos most notably like said he worked with jess franco and he worked with sergio martino and i started looking at some of the films that i was familiar with this being one of them of course he did the case of the Scorpion's Tale, which is a Sergio Martino film, another giallo. One of the very first giallos that I actually watched is The Case of the Bloody Iris. That okay. film is a part of a giallo collection. At the time, the Best Buy, they were releasing like a lot of Fulci films and Argento films in the early 2000s. I picked up a box set that had these giallos. So he's known for that. One film I would highly recommend, there's a YouTube video, which I can post later on, which does a soundtrack of All the Colors of the Dark. There's two references. I'll, I'll bring it real quick because they're important. Eli Roth used Edward Finnick in Hostel 2. Who is okay. Edward Finnick? She starred in a lot of sexploitation films in the 60s and 70s. A lot of Martino films, a lot of Giallo films. She was involved with that film, All the Colors of the Dark. One film that I also own is Your Vice is a Locked Room and Only I Have the Key. Is that really a film title? Wow. It is. So he does a score for those films. He does a score for the French sex murders. One we talked about later on is Caligula. Right. And he went Which by a pseudonym. Which all on its own. Yeah. His, Not something we'll probably end up covering on this podcast. Yeah, but. but it's super infamous if you're familiar with the film itself. But the point being is that he was involved with a lot of Jess Franco films. In my opinion, if you like... Kind of like with uh, the black exploitation side where they don't use, I guess, like a Hollywood orchestra and things like that. Mm-hmm. They use more like R&B and just a style of the time. So these Italian films mostly use like lounge music. So if you like that and kind of just, like I said, you just want to relax and hear some really fucking good music. Right. This guy's brilliant. And it's fu- it's funny that you, n- you now point out to me that he worked with Ennio at times yeah. because... When I was watching this movie yesterday, Jesse, who appeared on another one of our shows with the Red State Tusk episode, was over here watching it with me, actually. And we both we both partway through it 
were kind of like, man, this sounds kind of like Spaghetti Western-ish. Like, he's doing a lot of the same stuff in this. And not, not completely all the way through. He doesn't make it feel like a Western, but if you're familiar with sort of the way that those scores are arranged, because there's a certain feel to them, exactly. then then you're going to notice those notes throughout this, too. But not in a bad way. It's just the, the influence definitely rings throughout his work. Yeah, and because we're doing this film, and like I said, I'm familiar with Jess Franco, and then I'm familiar with some of this guy's work. I did do a... A little sound sampling for mm-hmm. Bruno. Man, this guy is fucking brilliant. So do yourselves a favor. I'll even post some later on when we post this episode of some of his clips. Brilliant composer. One other guy I wanted to mention because we both do editing and mm-hmm. I wanted to give this guy some props is uh, Bruno Mattai. Now, the reason I brought him up, not necessarily because of his editing work, although he does a brilliant job, worked like I said, a lot with Jess Franco as well, but he did directing on top of screenwriting and being exploitation he was known for doing the women in prison okay non-exploitation to zombie cannibal and nazi exploitation films i do want to point out that we're not making up some of these no we are not remember we were talking about that in blockula now we're back again these are not made up these are actual sub we're not going to delve into each one of them but if you want to yes non-exploitation is a thing if you like sexy nuns yeah hey there you go if you like 70s sexy nuns Nunsploitation. If you like seventies, maybe you're into weird, kinky Nazi exploitation. There's some yeah. that that going on. Go for it. Weird cannibal exploitation. Like I said, there was all these sub variations, and I'm familiar with some of these films mm-hmm. just because I got into them in my twenties. But anyway, I brought him up because he's most notably known for being what a lot of filmmakers and people in in Italian media and just in European media they called him the Ed Wood of Spanish films or Italian films. And the reason being because he would literally rip off anything that he could borrow and put in his films. He would rip off Zombie, which was the composers of a lot of Dario Argento films. He literally ripped off one of their songs and put it in one of his films. So he's known for doing that. He was known for like stealing clips and putting anything he could do to make a film, he would do it at that Mm -hmm. time. So that's kind of what he's known for. And I thought it was interesting because he works with Jess Franco, who's known for that. Uh, We just talked about Alan Towers, who was known for running prostitute rings with big time wigs. These guys, how how involved are they with their funding too? You got to think, where's that money coming from for them to do these films? Not that it was big money, but it was enough for them to do these films. Yeah. It's interesting. this this just became such a more interesting film than I ever imagined. Yeah, so that's why I was a little bit excited. Involved. I mean, I love the the whole Dracula, the Bram Stoker's vision of Dracula, and knowing like to the Vlad the Impaler side of it too is gives it a whole different dynamic. But aside from that, knowing the, the film side of this it, film, the pre the people oh, side of this so film, so excited. And you mentioned that we probably talk more about these people than the whole film itself. The people side of this film is just amazing. Yeah, uh, I'm glad. And that it's we got and to it, like this. we said earlier, it's worth a watch if you're a film of any yeah. one of the things we mentioned. But exactly. I don't really have much more to say about it. I don't. So. But what I am excited for mm. is your mm. post '90s pick. Okay, so before I reveal it to you, I have some questions. Or post '90. You actually have a lot of clues in your room i don't think you i don't know if you're aware of that or not so one of the clues i'll give you is are you familiar with ron perlman yeah all right what are you familiar most notably with ron perlman beauty and the beast okay right. <laughs> how, how, about, how about maybe more related on your wall over here what do i have over there do i have hellboy over there i think you might have hellboy okay and do you know who does hellboy the director oh yeah yeah, yeah. That, that's going to be Mr. Uh, Guillermo del Toro. Yeah, so, all right, I was like, all right, so this might be the first time oh, we get to talk man, about... Oh, man, I'm not sure. I, I didn't think you were going to go, Guillermo. Okay. okay. 
So I was like, all right, this I is thought... my post-1990. So before I reveal it, what do you think I was going to pick? What did you have in mind? Uh, you said that because we had brought him up a few times before. The only other director... I didn't think of Guillermo. Okay. I thought the only other director that we brought up a few times before, I thought you were going to go from dusk till dawn. You thought I was going to go Bobby? I thought you were going to go Bob Rod. <laughs> no, you were close. You were close. Especially when you, because you also dropped the hint before that I have shit pertaining to him, and I have like yeah. fucking like machete. We up have on me- my... we have mentioned him a lot, and he does fall in that post nineteen ninety. I consider that that's that's a good point. But then I thought about Del Toro and the fact that we haven't really covered any uh, Mexican directors, let alone Del Toro. We've talked about him, right? But the film that I chose, and I'll hand it to you. Oh, Chronos! I'll tell you what. I, I made the mistake one time of trying to watch this. Mm-hmm. When it was already like three o'clock in the morning, so I've seen like the first ten minutes, but it, I just shouldn't have been watching anything. It's and okay. I'm going to be super excited to actually watch through this. So I figured, you know what? I do have a collection of DVDs, but there are certain films I don't own. So I went out and got a, a copy of the Blu-ray Criterion Collection because I wanted to properly view this and maybe get some side nuggets for our next episode. So I'm going with Del Toro. Actually, I think this might be his first featured film, if yeah, I'm not mistaken. I believe so. So people might be familiar with Hellboy and Pan's Labyrinth and The Devil's Backbone and some other films amongst us, but I, I thought maybe Mimic might, might be yeah Mimic might be a good way to talk about Del Toro. Maybe we Pacific can, Rim. Yeah, see, I mean this this guy is super I lo- relevant. I love Guillermo Del Toro. He is such a cool guy. I've watched. I've actually watched quite a number of interviews He's super with humble. him. He seems to be into pretty much all the same things that I'm into. Yeah, and so like I really wish that I could just like hang out with. So we're gonna get we're so gonna get I'm to get super excited for meta that. on it, right? We get to talk about Ron Perlman. That almost opens my choice back up. Yeah, because you're not doing what I thought you were gonna do. However, I'm pretty sure I'm still gonna stick with my choice. Okay. I've made my choice now, and I'm really excited to to tell you. But that's not gonna be till next episode. Yeah, so keep that in mind. So with our next film, we're gonna do Del Toro's 1993 Chronos. Right? Wow, I didn't think we were gonna be going that way. I'm so that's awesome. Okay, Chronos. Next episode, if you want to listen to the next episode, you can find us at SoundCloud and, you know, subscribe to us, all that stuff. Right. And that goes the same for, you know, iTunes, Google Play, Stitcher, Stitcher, Tuned In. And you can follow us on Twitter at Fried Squirms. We're using a little bit more, a little bit more. Facebook, search for Fried Squirms. We now have an Instagram, oh, Fried yeah. Squirms Podcast. We'll try to do shit there. I don't know what we're going to do exactly. Probably mostly just put up the episode pictures. Yeah. But we got other shit already. We'll drop some, some we'll, stuff we'll do some stuff. If we go out and do stuff, you'll get pictures. Yeah. If we, if I we get add bored. to our collection. If I get bored, like yeah. you'll see shit. We'll be a little, little bit more I mean, more it's Instagram. You, might, you know what you're going to see. It's Instagram. Yeah. No dong pitches, we, we promise. And then... What am I missing? Did I say our Twitter? I said Twitter. I said yeah. Facebook. I, I don't said think we, we mentioned. Our... Oh, and you can just always follow us on our website. Yep. www.friedsquirms.com. Email and if us. you want to get in touch with us, you can email us squirmcast at gmail.com. Yeah. So you have various avenues to come find us. We're out there in, in the digital format. Rock down. Cyberspace world. We are live characters. Beings. And then you'll take it. But um, I, I really enjoy this film man i like i'm looking forward to the next film and uh i am too uh yeah i'm super excited i was going to be excited anyway with the things that i thought you were going to pick but now i'm even more excited so awesome and i have something else that that reminds me of that i can tell you once we're done with this so let's wrap it up okay peace bitches let us know (laughs) maybe like i said because we are dropping that new theme right Oh, yeah, the new theme. Tell us how you like it. Yeah, give us some feedback. Tell us what you think. So we can go be like, Justin, you're the best. Yeah, I mean, we're already going to tell him that, but because it's an awesome theme. I love it, whether you guys do or not. Justin's a good guy. Anyway, 
I'm Tyler. Yeah, 31st episode. I'm Danny. 31st. This was Dracula. We're and Christopher Lee, Klaus Kinski. Fry Squirm's out. Out. <laughs> <laughs>